Hey everyone, super excited to be here. This is our first one of these live events. The aim here is really to cover any topics that are of interest or relevance to you from a sustainability perspective, anything that you're struggling with, anything that's a challenge that you don't feel is appropriately covered either in the existing literature or just from a business practice perspective. I'm gonna actually start off with a really important question that came up in one of the comments, which is from Oliver, around how long we think it'll take for sustainability data to have parity of importance with financial data and whether we ever think that'll happen. Uh, that question is often contrasted with parity of importance versus parity of accuracy. And I think actually the two work hand in hand, where one of the reasons why sustainability data today doesn't have the same level of importance as financial data is because it's not as credible, it's not as reliable, it's not as robust. And I think two things need to happen for us to give sustainability data that kind of parity. One of those things is for accuracy levels to evolve. Accuracy doesn't necessarily need to mean uh, accuracy on a simple scale of 90%, 95%, 100%. Accuracy can also be given the context of that data, given the standard to which that data is comparable, given the methodology being used, given the data sources available, what do we think the accuracy of that data is? So I think one is the evolution of that data accuracy and quality. And the second is the ability to have some sort of a standardized conversion of what that sustainability data is in cash terms. So you can look at this as a carbon price. You can look at this as a price set on the basis of an internal pricing mechanism, which are those, those pricing mechanisms are increasing in sophistication and uh, complexity. You can look at it as a carbon price set on the basis of an external uh, benchmark, such as a carbon tax, for example, or a carbon offset uh, price. But some ability to convert a carbon number, for example, and I'm just taking that as one example out of all the realm of sustainability data, some ability to convert that into cash terms, into monetary terms, and some ability to rely on that data from a quality and an accuracy perspective, such that that calculation or that equation is reliable. I think those two things need to happen. And as we see those two things coming in into play, I think we'll start to see sustainability data have the same importance as financial data, because you'll be able to understand what that number equates to in cash terms. The good news is that I think both of those trends are actually already pretty well underway, uh, especially in the largest businesses or the businesses that are most forward leaning. So if you look at the uh, accuracy and comparability and quality of that uh, sustainability data, for example, and again, let's start with emissions because it's comparably simpler, comparably easier. Uh, what you see is an extensive unpacking of what used to be a simple carbon number at the level of the business, call it scope one and two or scope one, two and three, for example, and an unpacking of that to get into the weeds of what were the methodologies deployed, what were the assumptions used, what were the data sources used, what were the emissions factors used, and increasingly also what sits beneath those emissions factors uh, in terms of their structure, their time period, for example, and their nature. Uh, and that, I think, is going to catalyze this shift towards increasing quality. And I'm using quality somewhat as a heuristic for accuracy. And on the, the, the equation or the conversion to cash terms, I think there's a lot of development happening here. I referenced carbon pricing. I think carbon pricing is going to move from the world of being super simple, where uh, I think it was three or four years ago that BP came out with a carbon price of around $100, I think, or £100 uh, per ton for their business. And that was at the time quite a sophisticated approach and quite a forward-leaning approach and, and also quite a high number. I think we're entering a world where those 
sorts of magnitudes are going to seem much more common for those sorts of businesses. And also uh, that number is going to be less of an overall number and more of an aggregation of lots of subsidiary numbers. So it's going to be an aggregation of a marginal abatement cost, for example, for different types of activities or the cost of transitioning from an emissions intensive acti activity to a low emissions intensive variation at a per ton level for that given activity is going to be aggregated up to create a, a composite carbon price. And I think those two elements should, if used in conjunction, give you a granular, verifiable cost of taking carbon out of your business, for example. Uh, so hopefully that, that addresses that question. Happy to pick up any follow-ons uh, if relevant. Uh, I want to move on to another question from Yulia, which is around the benefit of using software tools uh, for measuring emissions. And I think Yulia means... Uh, publicly available commercial software tools, again, Altruistic is one, and, and there will be others, uh, for measuring emissions over building an Excel-based tool internally. And I'm actually going to generalize that a bit, if that's okay, and look at it as a sort of a build versus buy trade-off. Because a lot of the companies that we speak with, for example, certainly the larger ones that have been on this topic for a while, have built some version or some level of capability internally to address their understanding of emissions. We see a lot of variations in that. So for example, one variation is around scope coverage. Uh, some of the, the tools that have been deployed for several years now were typically covering scope one and two, for example. Increasingly, they're now covering scope three as well. And the second is around, um, I guess, how complex the tool itself is. And here we've seen all kinds of things. Uh, some businesses that are really forward-leaning, for example, in the apparel space that we know well, have built G Suite-based tools that started off being quite simple and progressively evolved into something really, really complex and actually increasingly sophisticated. They, they have sort of data feeding in from different data sources within the business. They have lots of different assumptions at play. They have increasingly complex formulas running, and they're trying to actually enrich a lot of that uh, calculation with the relevant context and metadata that needs to go with it. And we're seeing variations of that, obviously, in Excel and so on. Uh, and usually around, a, let's say, a mid-sized business of a few hundred million to a billion dollars revenue as it grows might have kind of started building one of those tools and just evolved it and evolved it and evolved it. Usually that's worked well where there are a few very dedicated, very diligent sustainability practitioners inside the business who are also with the business for a period of time uh, in, in, in terms of a few years at least, such that they can actually own the evolution of that platform and that capability because that person is really playing almost like an architect role as well. That model and approach tends to struggle a lot when there's a fairly high attrition rate or turnover of sustainability talent within the business because these, let's say, um, these internal models tend to really suffer when knowledge and subject matter expertise leaves the business and all that context that's retained in terms of knowing, for example, where data came from, what was associated with the data, who in the business has the right answers when you want to query, for example, what sits within a particular packaging in terms of structure and mix. Uh, these sorts of things are real liabilities in that in that model. But, but let me come to that in a moment. Um, I think the, there's another variation of these internal models that we see, which is at the even higher end of complexity, where it's actually where the business is pulling together lots of different underlying solution providers to create something 
uh, again, quite complicated, but much more like a finished product. They're basically owning the technology stack and they're saying we're actually going to, for example, work with supplier X to build the underlying formulas and maybe it's a consultancy that they like. Uh, we're going to work with data providers to source the emissions factors. We're going to work with something like maybe a Power BI or whatever to visualize uh, on top and we're kind of layering out and we have something else for data capture from suppliers and from farm level, for example. And you might have three or four different pieces of software at play at least. You might have a couple of different consultancies evolved. You'll have, you'll have a verification and validation element as well. And all of that comes together to create really this sort of quite complex te technology stack that the business maintains and owns uh, with the help of these third parties. And then at the other end of the spectrum, on the more simple side, you have obviously something that's just a simple Excel, simple calculation, you know, just one or two or three tabs running that could work for a very small business. So I think if I look at these three different, let's say, archetypes of internal build, where you have something very simple, the Excel, individual Excel spreadsheet or tab, you have something quite a lot more sophisticated where it's actually, you know, still in maybe G Suite or Excel, but with increasing complexity layered on in terms of the assumptions and the calculations and the context. And then something at the uh, at the more extreme end where it's actually pieced together software, basically functioning as a holistic solution. I would see this as the realm of building an internal, internal tool suite. I think that there are a few advantages of doing it this way. And let's first look at those before we look at the disadvantages or the reasons why you might want to go external. I think the advantages of doing this this way are certainly context. It's usually a lot easier to make sure that this is relevant for your business context because you have full control over building it. You have full control over what the data looks like. You have full control over the calculations and every aspect is really ta tailored to your business. And that's going to be true of any any build versus buy scenario in, in the software world. I think another advantage of this is that you have full visibility and a lot of the off-the-shelf software tools that you might get and a lot of the enterprise software solutions that you might get, certainly in the emissions measurement space, will actually not give you equivalent visibility on all of the underlying assumptions and all of the underlying, let's say, code that goes in to generating an emissions inventory, for example, or a product lifecycle. And so the, the visibility that you get from literally having an open face uh, you know, tool at your disposal. You can literally dig into whatever aspects and you've maybe even built all the original formulas yourself. That's also quite unparalleled, I think. And, and maybe the third advantage that I think which will appeal to a number of our colleagues in the sustainability space on the corporate side within businesses is that they can really play around and manipulate the calculations um, in the sense that they can actually trial and trial different scenarios. They can see what happens if I take out a particular ingredient or a particular material or input. What happens if uh, the mix of recycled content in a packaging substrate shifts from 20 to 25%. They can really play around with all of this with unparalleled flexibility and ease. And I think that's certainly a, you know, another big advantage of, of building it internally. Um, maybe to go over to the other side, which is what are the disadvantages of trying to build this internally. Again, I think there are a few big ones. Uh, one of the ones that certainly comes to mind is uh, the maintenance factor, which is it becomes really, really, really difficult to maintain uh, certainly the, let's say, two more complicated archetypes of the three that I mentioned. So if you're building an internal kind of G Suite or Excel based calculator of your own, all those assumptions, the very fact, the very elements that give you such 
context specificity and make it such a good fit for your business, you have to maintain that. You have to make sure that they're always current. You have to make sure that if you're sourcing assumptions from different parts of the business, you're always going on to source the latest version of those assumptions. If there were certain suppliers that were used last year, you're going back to revisit whether it's the same suppliers that are providing certain inputs this year, whether those have changed, whether the specifications have changed. Uh, If you're using emissions factors, for example, you're the one responsible for understanding whether the emissions factors that you're using in one year are comparable to those you used in the previous year, for instance. All that maintenance, let's say headache for want of a better word, sits with you as the owner of the solution that you've built internally uh, or you as a team. And that can become increasingly difficult to manage, especially in a realm where you have thousands of suppliers and you're also centralizing all the supplier data in the same tool suite. Uh, or you have you know, many thousands of ingredients, for example, and inputs, that just becomes really difficult. Uh, even in the, let's say, more, most complex archetype where you've also effectively packaged this and you've kind of put a dashboard skin on top, and to some extent you've, you, you've sort of secured it from, uh, you know, you, you, you've made it look like a, like, like a proper piece of software that, that someone could buy. Even there, you're actually going to find that the maintenance aspect of all the different components gets to be quite tricky. And if you change one, for example, let's say you're changing the underlying formulas for how the emissions are calculated, you might actually have disruption in other parts of the the, the stack. And if you're working with different suppliers for different components, that becomes quite difficult to then navigate and manage. Uh, so I think this, this sort of maintenance aspect is, is one big one. Uh, the second one, I think, is around, again, subject matter expertise and, and talent retention and the risk that that poses to being able to use this tool again next year or the year after, which is these tools usually struggle to capture records. Uh, and by that, I mean that they're, they're good for calculation of a specific inventory, for example, or a product lifecycle. They're usually not so good for version control, for want of a better term. They're not so good for comparability of what did you do last year versus this year without getting into a massive lacuna of having lots of different calculators for different versions at different points in time and having to manage the comparison. Imagine that you've kind of built a spreadsheet, you've run a calculation, you need that tool to run next year's calculation, you're going to start replacing all of the assumptions, you're going to start playing around with it, and very quickly it becomes very hard to compare to what you had previously. Uh, think of that multiplied by a 100 or a 1,000 and then put that in a regulatory or quasi-regulatory context where this becomes really, really difficult to manage. Uh, so that's, I think, a second one, which is as soon as, as soon as you have anyone now moving around in the business, let's say your sustainability professional owning that model has moved elsewhere, the only record keeping you really had of what assumptions were used in that model or in that tool sit within that person or those individuals, and they've now moved into a different part of the business or they've left the business and gone elsewhere, you now have a massive struggle to manage that record keeping aspect. So this sort of internal knowledge uh, retention and capability, this is, this is another big one that I think is, is a challenge uh, when, you're, when you're building your own tool. A third one, I think, is around engagement and usability. 
And this comes in a few different variations or flavors. So one of them is that usually these tools for the most part, and this is certainly true for archetype one, which is the simple spreadsheet and archetype two, which is the more complex kind of multi-layered model. Uh, it's certainly true for those two that it's very hard to get multiple users using the tool in a way that doesn't seem purely transactional. And what I mean by that is you can go out and you can ask someone for data and you can input the data into, into the tool. You can maybe even send them the, the tool over, over email or you can add them in and you can kind of share, you can share it and you can have, have both sides working on it together. But it's very hard for you to do that without being disruptive. You need to have one master owner uh, so that you don't have anyone breaking the model, basically. And anything beyond two people or three people becomes just really difficult to manage, whether it's inputs or outputs or calculations. Um, the, the third archetype, which is with a proper kind of dashboarding and skin and, and user access rights and so on on top of that, that can be a little easier to manage that. But you usually then have still limitations where now all of that customized functionality that you liked is no longer visible to all those users. So you actually lose a lot of the things that you liked about that internal tool set uh, in the first place. Um, and then the other thing is that uh, also from a usability perspective, if you want to actually use this data to start driving reductions, you want to actually democratize access and visibility and use of this data at the level of maybe many different parts of the business, many different individuals, dozens of individuals, maybe procurement teams, operational teams. That's just increasingly difficult to do with, with in-house tools built in any shape or form. Um, and then I think maybe the, sorry, there's a fourth thing, maybe just a flag, which is, again, very common for any build versus buy scenario in software, which is it's really difficult for you to ensure that these remain current because standards in the space are evolving all, all the time. I was just on a call related to flag uh, guidance for anyone in the agricultural value chain, for example. And a lot of that guidance is just evolving very, very, uh, in some ways fast and in some ways slowly, actually, which means that you're going to need to keep making updates to different component parts of the calculation, whether it's the methodology, whether it's emissions factors being used, for example. And that's just on the kind of almost like the back end elements. If you think about how you want to play around and evolve in line with evolving standards, you want to sort of be able to play around with the data while still always being compliant with the latest standards and thinking. That's just really difficult to do if you build something internally. Um, happy to go into more details on any aspect of that, but also want to move over to the uh, next question from, from Urtaza, which is, um, as a supplier, how do we collaborate with our customers on sustainability in a way that brings us value as a business? I think this is really interesting. And in, in some previous situations, we've touched on this from the customer angle moving backwards. So as a customer, how do you collaborate with your suppliers to, uh, to move on sustainability in a way that generates value? I think it's interesting also to look at it as a supplier looking forward. And I think that the best way that I would think about it is to think of sustainability and let's say emissions reduction as a new service line for your business. So let's say you're a farming business, for example, and you're in the business of selling potatoes or tomatoes or onions or whatever, or you're a processor and you're selling a, a certain finished product, whatever it might be, if you think of sustainability as a new service line, you're basically helping your customer, and this is a business to business context, you're helping your customer to drive a reduction potentially in their overall emissions baseline in their scope tree, for example. 
and you should see yourself as competing with other reductions that they might want to make elsewhere, much in the way that you would compete on a core product. The product that you're selling exists in a competitive landscape versus other products that other suppliers are, are selling. And what you want to say is that you have other competing initiatives in your sustainability agenda. It might be electric vehicles. It might be solar panels on the roof. It might be different packaging substrates, for example. And my interventions as a supplier that I'm making visible and available to you to invest in, to finance, to collaborate with me on, are competitively placed versus those others. And I would look at this in very similar terms uh, to how you might look at any service proposition, for example, that you're going to be making. So I would think about price. So let's say again, let's take um, let's take a, a, a farming business, for example, supplying a food processor. Uh, your product, your emissions reduction interventions should be competitive from a pricing perspective. Let's say it's replacing diesel generators on the farm, or it's a different kind of agricultural practice, moving towards regenerative, whatever it might be. From a price per ton basis, if you can actually provide an estimated price per ton that is competitive versus a, what you assume to be the price per ton of the customer business's emissions reduction plan, that's a competitive pricing approach. In the best way when you're selling a product, you'll work out what the best alternative is for your customer and you should do the same thing for an emissions reduction intervention. The second thing is to think again about quality. What is the quality of the emissions reduction intervention that you're offering here from the perspective of, is it a long-term reduction plan? Is it a highly visible reduction plan that will kind of uh, add value to them and their business from the perspective of how they communicate with their customers. Is this something iconic? Is this something that really resonates with their business and again, their product market fit for their customers? I would sort of think about the marketing aspect of those interventions and think about how we emphasize the quality of this emissions reduction. You see this happening in the offset space as well, where Again, it's, it's sort of like a parallel part of the ecosystem, but the highest priced offsets tend to be the ones that are most synergistic with the business of the buyer and are most tailored to the business of the buyer from a marketing perspective. There's lots of high quality visual collateral provided, for example, there's a narrative, there's a story. All of these things differentiate and add an ability to boost price by emphasizing in some ways an aspect of quality. Uh, and the third piece I would think about in this in this aspect of how you really position yourself as a supplier, not just of physical product, but of emissions reduction interventions, is also how you can emphasize uh, the non-core aspects, the transparency, uh, the engagement, the collaboration, the partnership, all these aspects uh, as a either as a learning experience for your customer to see how what great collaboration looks like across the supply chain that they may be able to repeat elsewhere or as a co-branding experience for you to kind of say again, let's let's actually go out and do some joint campaigning around this, this, this work that we're doing together. We see a lot of amazing supplier customer partnerships in this space, but I would kind of think of those three aspects. Again, how do you price this as a service offering in a competitive way that competes with other emissions reduction interventions? The second is how do you really emphasize the quality of this and the quality and the uniqueness of what you're selling? And the third, how do you how do you really showcase the partnership or collaboration uh, or the non-core aspects of the relationship that you're building with this customer so that you can as much as possible also shift the narrative away from elements that might be harder for you to negotiate on again, like maybe it's price in the situation where you don't have a lot of negotiation leverage. 
Uh, again, can can go into more detail on that also if, if it comes up in the comments. Um, want to move on to the next question from Matt, which is around what is the evolving role of a, a CSO? And a CSO in this context, I think, means a chief sustainability officer. Uh, how should I be thinking about building out my team? I think this is a super interesting question. And the answer has changed a lot over the last 10 or 15 years. So if you go back 15 years and you look at the Fortune 500, I think that about less than 5% had a chief sustainability officer or equivalent. And those that did probably saw that role in a very different way to the way that most of the Fortune 500 would see that role today. And I think now at this point in time in 2023, I would expect that number to be closer to 60%, 70% of the Fortune 500 either having a chief sustainability officer in place or having someone with a slightly different role title playing a very similar role, either as a side function or something like that, or having a similar role being marketed right now to be filled. And there are a lot of these roles being marketed to be filled. I think to an extent, it looks slightly different in each, in, in, in every business really. But I'm going to lay out a few archetypes in a few ways that I've seen this work reasonably well. Uh, and then kind of just a couple of layers on top. I think one of the ways that I've seen this work quite well, and actually Nestle does this quite nicely, for example, which is where they have a, a sort of an external chief sustainability officer almost, or a person who has the external facing role involved here, the reporting and the stakeholder management and the public engagement, for instance. And they have an internal equivalent or one who looks more at the operations, the supply chain, the procurement, and how are they changing the emissions, uh, for example, profile of the, of the business and going into regenerative agriculture and other fields. Uh, other companies have similar sorts of splits uh, where they have people looking at one part of the problem and another person looking at a different part, and they slice it sometimes a bit differently. Uh, I've seen another situation uh, where actually the R&D team of the business will be most heavily engaged, for example, in scope two, because that's where a lot of the manufacturing element comes in and the procurement side will be much more heavily engaged on scope three. And so you can kind of think, think of this as a bit of fragmentation where actually there isn't one CSO. There's actually two or three different CSO or sub-CSO roles tackling different parts of it. Um, and then there's another one where you have a proper CSO with a, with a function and the function kind of sits let's say alongside other functions. Um, and then there's a third where you actually don't have a single CSO really. You have someone playing, some, someone sort of double hatting, and then you have a sustainability layer uh, on top of different functions. So your operations team will have a sustainability component, your, uh, your procurement team will have a sustainability component and you'll have different elements. Um, I think that if I was if I was a chief sustainability officer and kind of building out a, a proper function for this, so I'm thinking of that middle archetype, that second archetype, uh, I would I would look to have I would first look to define what the role is that that function is going to play in the business, and I think that there are a couple of options here. I think one option is that you see the sustainability function as really driving sort of uh, the PMO almost, the, the performance management office for the business from the perspective of sustainability. And as such, your role and your functions role is not, not to be the front line on anything, but to be always the center of excellence, the supporting pillar and the knowledge hub 
and the uh, let's say the the center of excellence from a KPI's perspective to support the rest of the business in making things happen. And what you then probably want is you want to sit within uh, within your function. You want to have peers for different parts of the business. So you'll want to have, for example, the capability within that function to work closely with. Uh, procurement, for example, to work closely with R&D, to work closely with different parts of the business in the in the shape of preparing them for transition. And so let's say that you have a team working with the r you, you have an individual or, or two working with the R&D side of your business, uh, that individual would would have a mandate to bring expertise on uh, what types of materials are the most likely to be adding a positive impact from the perspective of how we engineer our product? What types of shifts do we see in the market? What types of shifts do we see our peers doing? What industry collaborations upstream on new material sourcing do we want to collaborate with that could be helpful here? And how do we lead the uh, industry-wide research agenda? You see a lot of really cool stuff happening, for example, in hydrogen as a fuel and alternative materials uh, in food or in apparel, for instance, or even in cosmetics, that, that's quite interesting to lean in on. And a lot of that external lens uh, that's outside the business comes from the sustainability angle into the business, because a lot of the time those sustainability individuals are the ones who are at the right conferences, in the right stakeholder groups, bringing that expertise in. Uh, and so I would th think similarly, what are the different peers for different parts of the business that I'm bringing together? And these are the pieces where I'm playing a supporting role as a sustainability function. And then there are going to be places where I'm playing a leading role. And there will be some elements where I need to play a leading role. So, for example, in a lot of the external reporting, I'll, I'll probably need to play a leading role. In a lot of the industry engagement and collaboration, certainly the first few years, I would need to play a leading role. Um, potentially in setting up the right data management systems, certainly, again, in the first years, you'd need to play a leading role. Increasingly, you want to start navigating a lot of these pieces to other parts of the business, because the longer that you keep it within a sustainability function, the more sustainability uh, struggles actually to get out into the business. If you take data as a good example, what you actually want is you want existing data systems and processes within the business to be enriched with this additional lens. A great way to think about this is at what point does sustainability data ownership transition into finance, for example. In many businesses, finance will be the main owner uh, of of the most relevant data-based insights for the business. There might be some other variations, but how do you actually get finance to then own sustainability data and treat it with, again, with parity to come back to a question we had earlier. So I would think of this sustainability function in when it's a function in itself as a transformation function or transition function that over the next five to 10 years is going to support the business in navigating change through supporting on some capabilities for other parts of the business and leading on some capabilities where there are gaps within the business today. Uh, moving on to a, another, and sorry, just to actually just close that off because I realized I didn't really talk about building out the team. Uh, I think that the, there's, there's probably... Uh, there's probably two or three skill sets that I would actually look to bring in. One is around uh, people who are really good at the collaboration element because you're going to have a lot of difficult conversations. Uh, the sustainability team is going to be at loggerheads often with the finance team, for example, because you're going to need investment. You're going to need to spend more in some cases. Uh, you're going to need to build business cases to show how what you're going to spend more on is going to deliver value later on. And so the ability to actually navigate those stakeholder conversations, run workshops, run sessions, run one-to-ones uh, -one effectively and convey often quite 
quite dense, quite difficult to, to absorb information in a seamless way. That's quite quite important. A second thing that I think is was understated or underpresent in a lot of sustainability functions three, four years ago is you want people who are increasingly quantitative and comfortable with with using quantitative data to drive insights. There's actually a really nice uh, article published externally by our, our friend Tanis at Driscoll's where uh, where Tanis talks about the importance of data science, for example, coming in to support sustainability teams in driving effective decision making. And I think that sort of thing is is really important as a new skill set. Doesn't need to be data scientists, but they, but people should be comfortable with data with 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 hard data and actually with defending the robustness of the data and making decisions on the back of that. Um, and then I think the the third skill set you don't necessarily need all of these these in 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 one person or two people, but just to cover across the team. I think the third piece is you need people who can be quite creative and can be quite visionary because a lot of the stuff that we need to do here is going to be about redesign and reinvention. And some of the best inter interventions from a sustainability perspective are new product designs, whether it's entirely new products themselves or changing up again material mixes, changing up formulations or helping drive that within the business. And you need people who can visualize and imagine something a lot better than what exists today. Uh, so I, I would think about those sort of three skill sets to cover. Uh, another question is coming from Samantha, which is around... Uh, there's a clear need for collaboration over competition. Do you have any advice on how best to create robust business-to-business -business partnerships without harming the business? This is also super interesting, and we've heard this come up quite a lot recently, which is uh, for a lot of the businesses that are doing sustainability well, you're investing time, money, and resources in building capabilities internally because those didn't exist outside. It could be around data, it could be around digitization, uh, it could be around uh, relationships with suppliers and you've built a really powerful strategic network of suppliers that are engaging with you on sustainability or you've built your own digital platform and tooling, whatever it might be. And once that, that, once that is built or more or less built, there's almost a disincentive or an apparent disincentive to share that or to collaborate with others when it comes to that. And instead, you'd want to sit on that and use that as a proprietary advantage because after all, you invested in it. No one else was doing it. It didn't exist. And you've gone out there and created that. And part of your payback that you uh, you you sort of promised your business is that this was going to be a proprietary advantage. So how do you now go out and actually like partner with others, often with, with competitors, for example, when, when you've invested scarce resources from the business in creating those advantages. And I think that this is a really fair point. And there's a part of me that kind of wants to say, look, this is, this is a joint mission. And if we, if, if we don't all succeed here, we're all gonna fail pretty much when it comes to climate change and sustainability. But at the same time, I think we, we have to be pragmatic. We have to expect that business needs that sort of a, needs some sort of a commercial payoff as well uh, for succeeding on sustainability. So what I would kind of say is, I think that you want to define uh, certain, let's say uh, certain battlegrounds, which are going to be head to head competition with other businesses where you do more or less say, look, this is this is our commercial interest at stake and certain other areas where actually there's uh, not necessarily much advantage in you building proprietary capabilities. And I'll give an example of each. 
when it comes to data, for example, and let's say emissions factors, I know a lot of companies, a lot of large dairy companies, for example, that come to mind, which have built proprietary data capture tooling to capture farm level data. And that farm level data will ultimately be used to generate emissions factors and product level LCAs, for instance, of stuff coming out of those suppliers. And they've invested huge resources in building that capability and that toolkit. And there's a disincentive to share that with their competing businesses. In this case, I would say, to my mind, that's actually not a disincentive. And the reason I say, say that is, in the data space, within emissions, certainly, the more that your data is closed and covered up in a black box and un invisible to others, the less useful it is to you as well. What you actually want is you want to be using emissions factors and emissions calculations that are transparent and, and verifiable as a result and believable to others and credible. And the more that you the more that you kind of close that up, the less easy it is for anyone else looking at your business to trust that data that you're putting out. And so there actually what you have is an advantage in more people adopting your standards, more people adopting your data, more people recognizing uh, the role that your data plays in, in, in enhancing the ecosystem. So I think there is actually a pretty big incentive to collaborate in a pre-competitive environment um, with, with, with your peers, for example, and actually build the ecosystem that will benefit you as well. And you'll also find that the payback, once you've invested in that capability, the payback is in the maintenance cost. You actually maybe don't need to shoulder the whole of that maintenance cost. Maybe there are bits of it that you can actually uh, you can actually you can share across your peers and across other companies pitching in on that space. And it's not just on the data maintenance side, but the fact that they're all collaborating with you and maintaining that data means they might also collaborate with you in investing in interventions, new technologies, new materials that are justified on the basis of that shared data capability that you've built together. And so there I would kind of think there's actually a pretty powerful reason uh, to collaborate. If I look at a different aspect, which is building more close and more strategic relationships with uh, supply chain partners, for instance, there I think that that's a core battleground for any business. The quality of your supplier relationships will range from being the absolute secret sauce of your business, where actually you never want anyone to know even who your suppliers are, let alone how much you're paying them and what you're sourcing from them. Um, to it's, you know, the standard commercial terms uh, that lock in your suppliers over a period of time and prevent them leaking know-how or leaking capabilities or leaking what they're supplying to you to, to others. Like this whole range, this whole kind of space is often a very uh, closely fought territorial battle between, between competing companies. And there I would say sustainability should frankly be another part of your toolkit, another part of your uh, your toolkit for for building a better, more competitive, more resilient business, which is I would I would use sustainability as an advantage in building supplier relationships. I would use a shared understanding of mission and goals and strategy and direction as as a as a as a good way to build stronger relationships over time, for instance. And I think that's that's fair game. So there are a couple of examples, and there'll be lots of others, I'm sure, that can come in as well. Uh, but I would say that you want to really identify where do you want to collaborate and where is it in your interest to collaborate versus where actually is there a competitive advantage to be built. Uh, we have a question from Sidra, which is any advice you'd give 
to a professional coming from a non-sustainability work background, trying actively to pivot to a climate career and find their place in the space. I think, Sidra, the good news is that not only are there uh, a lot of people in your position or in this position where they're looking to move into this space, but also, and more importantly, there's a huge need for people moving into this space. And I think that there are uh, a couple of ways that I would approach this if I was in this position. Um, and and one of those ways is I would I would look at it from the perspective of what my capabilities are that I'm bringing to the table outside of sustainability. So I know, for example, individuals that were in marketing and they've now moved into sustainability, but the lens that they bring is a marketing lens. How do I position our brand in the most sustainable way? How do I communicate a narrative and a story to customers? How do I lean on my marketing expertise to move the sustainability mandate of a business forward? And I would, I would bring that sustainability lens onto the marketing lens, for example. Let's say you're a, you know, a mechanical engineer, for example, you could be doing the same thing. You could be bringing a sustainability lens onto the existing expertise and your expertise and capabilities will go a lot further as a result because you're powered still by all of the stuff that you've done previously, which I think is a really big advantage. I think that if I was coming at this, let's say, at an earlier point in my career, or maybe I don't have five years of marketing experience or, 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 or five years of engineering experience and an engineering degree or, or something else that I can parlay or convert into sustainability-relevant uh, expertise, I would still identify a part of the challenge that is interesting for me and where I have, let's say, some resonance or some relevance. And so, for example, you know, it could be a sector that you're excited about and you're invested in learning more about. And I think that always goes a long way. Uh, it could be a particular functional capability. It could be that you, uh, you, for example, really want to want to get into the apparel space and you're really excited about design. And you, you could then actually go about identifying what are the right courses for you to study that are quite specific and quite, quite in a niche in this space. Are there any particular internships or even volunteer work that you can do to try and get some exposure to this? Because the demand for talent in this space is already so big and is going to grow so fast that for better or worse, it's not going to take a lot of expertise to help you get a foot in the door. And over the next two or three years, I would hazard a guess that as many as 30 or 40% of the people in sustainability-related roles won't have more than two years of experience or three years of experience in sustainability. And so I think it's just about how do you identify a niche within that that you can come into even with very little expertise or no expertise, but just focus on which, are, which is the, the space that you want to get into and just make your, your passion, your excitement for that part of the space very apparent and very clear and ideally supported by even an internship or, or a course or some level of exposure. Um, another question from uh, Dieter, I hope I pronounced that right, uh, which is, I believe in moving people to change outcomes. How do I know what uh, software methodology is right for specific businesses and industries? This is, a, this is a really good question, and I think that it will be easier to answer in two years' time once the space is more mature, as an easier to answer for, for, for an individual looking at different software solutions. Um, and the reason is that so many companies in this space are quite young. Ideally, I think what you want to look for is um, the, the best case would be that you can actually identify players who are working in that relevant business or in that relevant industry in that context. And ideally, not, not because that industry or that space 
is 1% of their customer revenue. You want to identify companies that have a meaningful share of their revenue or a meaningful share of their business coming from a specific type of industry enough that you can be sure that they know that industry. Because what we're seeing is an increasing shift towards deep expertise in that industry being required. Let me give a couple of examples. Again, I referred to the the flag guidance for uh, setting SBTI targets that, that work for a business that sources from the agricultural value chain, for example. Those requirements are already quite complex and are going to get increasingly complex beyond that. And, you know, for example, you know, our business, Altruistic, has invested significantly in trying to understand those requirements and what it means. Um, and that will be relevant for certain types of businesses. It'll be relevant for apparel, cosmetics, food, you know, there are a few others. Um, but that doesn't make sense for most businesses in the software space for sustainability to do for many different industries. So you'll increasingly get some level of specialization such that a player can cover two or three industry verticals in some depth, but not 10, for example. So you want to find companies that have some level of density and some level of commitment to a particular space over and above other spaces. I think that's important. I think another aspect is that you want to see evidence that they work with businesses that are of a similar profile to yours. And to an extent, this is always true with any vendor that you're working with. I think the, the riff here is you want them to have worked with a business that is not just similar in focus and product or, or service, whatever your business might be, but also similar in size and, and global footprint. So, for example, if you're, let's say, you're, 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 you're an automotive business of a certain size and you have 20 or 30 different business units in different geographies, that's a really relevant distinction and makes you meaningfully different to a business that may actually have only one business unit because the complexities involved in spanning different geographies are, uh, are, are significant. And you want, to have, you want to have a partner with you that ha actually understands that not just from an accounting perspective, for example, but also even just user access rights and, and those sorts of things, data security, all that gets really, really complex when you go multi-country, for example. Um, at the other end of the spectrum, let's say you're a very small technology startup. You're a software company of 20 people going with a supplier that has expertise working with automotive companies with 30 different business units can actually actively be a bad thing for you to do. You may be attracted to the supplier because they've worked with BMW and Mercedes, for example, and these are these are big corporate names, but actually the capability skill set that that provider has invested in is likely to be stuff that is overkill for your business, whereas actually what your business emphasizes is not so much, again, complex data security uh, controls and so on, but rather just a very simple, slick user interface and a very simple, easy to understand uh, user experience. And that's actually what's most important to you because at your scale of business, the data quality and granularity and all that is, is, is good, but is not critical. What's more important is that you get on the journey somewhere and you evolve from there. And for that, something very simple and often much cheaper and easier would be the right fit. Um, I think that, you know, maybe just a part, part on this question, I think um, the best approach that I've seen to doing this from any business is always to run a process before you actually get into making a buying decision. And that doesn't have to be a very formal process, but I would just start speaking with different suppliers. I would speak with, uh, you know, whoever kind of comes your way, whether it's that they've reached out, they've been referred. I would certainly speak to peers. I would speak to people that I trust. I would try and see who, who are people in my network and circle recommending. 
And I would start speaking with those providers, not with a specific buying agenda in mind. I wouldn't say, look, I'm looking to procure a software solution. I'd love to understand if you're the right one. I would instead say, look, we, we're, doing, we're, we're interested in the space. We're approaching it now. Here are the things that are important to us. We'd love to understand what you do so that we can inform ourselves and make a better decision at, at some point in time. And I would actually kind of spend maybe just a few months running that sort of conversational process because spreading that over a slightly longer period of time does a couple of things. One, it informs your understanding of what you're going out there looking for, which is super important. The second is that actually engaging with a potential supplier at two or three points in their journey, as well as in yours, also allows you to see their rate of iteration and their rate of improvement and evolution. In the best possible way, what this will mean is you've raised something to them as an interesting problem to solve in March. You speak with them and again again in October, and they've actually already solved that in the solution that they're offering you. And that tells you a few things. One, it tells you that they're quick and they're fast and they iterate, and they will likely keep iterating after you start working with them. It also tells you that very probably multiple other people like you gave them the same feedback and they therefore prioritize this particular feature of functionality. And that's important because it shows that they are speaking with other people like you. And you're not, for example, either just a non-representative customer for them or one of very few people actually interested in procuring their software. Uh, hopefully that's that's somewhat helpful, Tita. Um, realize we've kind of come to the end of our questions and also actually overshot where I thought we'd be with this. Uh, I thought we'd go on for 30 or 40 minutes, but we're, we're already at 50. Uh, wanted to say a big thank you to everyone who joined. Hopefully this is this has been useful. Uh, we're going to publish this externally on LinkedIn and obviously we'll kind of uh, make, make it available offline to anyone who needs it. Uh, we'll also plan to do these sorts of sessions ideally every month. So please feel free to follow my LinkedIn page or get in touch with us if you want to be kept in the loop on this and look forward to hearing more questions from you ahead of the next session and hopefully speaking soon. Thank you guys.